I'm Darren McGrandall. I'm an elder here at Tri-Valley. This morning I'm going to be talking about the difference between covenant and contract. According to BibleGateway.com, in the NIV translation of the Bible, there are 332 references to the word covenant. Guess how many there are to the word contract? Ooh, close. There's two. Two references to contract. So I think God's word is trying to tell us something about the importance of this. Okay, let me start with a story. Once upon a time, there was an all-powerful God who, for some unfathomable reason of his own, decided to make people. So, he made them, and he set them in an idyllic spot. But, to make sure they were worthy of him, he gave them a test. He put two trees in the middle of their peaceful garden and told them one was okay to eat from, but the other was not. Now, this rule was all important because when they broke the rule, then the penalty clause kicked in. They got kicked out of the garden. Okay, that didn't work. So God thought, okay, let's try again. Uh, this time, uh, however, his children got so bad that he decided to wipe them all out, except for a few, and start over with Noah. Okay? But then, unfortunately, that ended spectacularly badly. So, then he tried Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Each time he made new deals with them, but they got broken over and over. To Moses, he said, follow these 10, uh, I mean 613, uh, simple commandments, and God will make you his people on earth and take care of you. The story gets painfully repetitive from there, as God's people break deal after deal, making God angrier and angrier until finally he says, fine, here's your last chance. Jesus comes down, and guess what? We slaughter him too. But for some reason we don't quite get, God decides not to hold that one against us, but instead does this divine version of a magician's trick, and poof, he holds our sins against Jesus instead. Jesus takes all his anger, allows his, God allows his own son to be slaughtered because he's so mad, and we get saved anyway, despite messing up over and over. There's this hidden clause in the contract we didn't see coming, but we're so glad that he has this new deal for us. Now, this might you, at this point, you might be saying something to yourself like, well, yeah, Darren, I mean, I might disagree a bit with a point or two about that story, but overall... Isn't that the gospel? I mean, isn't that the good news? That we managed to escape the wrath of this terribly vengeful, angry God? You would not be alone in this. However, I hope this morning to show you why this is completely wrong. But to get there, I'm going to have to slaughter one of our sacred cows. The concept of contractual thinking. Wait, what? What does contractual thinking have to do with the gospel? Okay, let me explain. I'm an amateur photographer, and I love to take pictures. Now, starting out, I didn't have very much money in this hobby, but I got some great advice. Somebody told me, spend what you do have on the lens, not the body of your camera. Now, 
me, I'm a techie guy, so megapixels, LED screen sizes, full frame sensors, all that sounds really impressive, but any good photographer will tell you an amazing picture is all about the light. And the thing that lets the light in has to be as perfect as possible because anything less than that distorts the image. The lens we use is the most important element in the whole process. I say contractual thinking is a lens you don't even realize you have on your camera, but it badly distorts your image of God. When you try and look at him and his word, it makes the gospel story look a lot like the twisted version I just finished telling you. So let's talk about what contractual thinking is, what covenantal thinking is, and how we can become more like our Savior by learning to think more covenant instead of contract. All right, first of all, what's a contract? A contract is simply an agreement between two parties enforced by a powerful, neutral third party, usually our legal system. Dictionary.com encompasses both these ideas in its definition of a contract, which is an agreement between two or more parties for the doing or not doing of something specified and an agreement enforceable by law. Okay. To help illustrate the concept of a contract, I need a volunteer from the audience. Who's going to help me? All right. Come up here, Hank. All right. I have a contract up here for Hank and I to sign. And it says... In effect, I will pay you 25 cents if you do six jumping jacks in front of the entire congregation. All right? Is that okay with you? Yeah. All right. So let's sign. You are under where it says the jumper. That's you. <laughs> the jumper. Good. Very carefully signed. Awesome. Perfect. And I am under where it says Darren. Perfect. Oh, and I'm going to put Hank up here for you. All right. So we have now signed. We have a signed contract. You guys all witnesses of that for me? Okay. So he has agreed to do six jumping jacks. Do you guys count with me? Okay. Anytime. One, two, three, four, five, six. All right. Thank you, Hank. I better actually have a quarter, huh? There you go. There's your quarter. All right. <laughs> Canadian quarter? All right. So, now, did you notice what we just did? I had a contract with him. I wrote it up, and both parties signed it. At that point, it became binding, enforceable by the courts. What if he'd only done five jumping jacks? There was a clause in the contract that covered that. All right? What if I didn't actually pay him 25 cents? What if I only gave him a nickel? There's a clause that covers that too. Did you read your contract carefully? With its power to mandate payments and even throw very serious offenders into jail, the court system is an essential ingredient in making a contract work because here's another important aspect of a contract. There is no trust needed by the parties. In fact, really, the whole reason we need a contract is because we actually don't trust each other. 
If we did trust each other, we could have done the old gentleman's handshake, remember? Back in the day. Something that today is considered kind of ludicrous in our modern society. But we can still do business very successfully with contracts. In fact, contracts have been so successful helping us get things done with people or companies we don't really trust that they've started to form the backbone of our economic culture. Employment contracts specifying wages and benefits on one side and employee expectations on the other. Lease agreements for an apartment or car. Finance and bank banking contracts, your mortgage. Non-disclosure agreements, warranties, facility use agreements, offers to sell, medical information releases, even Tom Holland signing a multi-million dollar deal for a new Spider-Man movie. Okay, that one was for my daughter, Rachel. <laughs> Obviously, there's a dizzying array of contracts in all areas of modern life. All right, so now that we've seen what a contract is, what is a covenant? Here we can no longer rely on dictionary.com because our society, I would say, has no idea what a covenant actually is supposed to look like. In fact, if you look it up, look up the word covenant on dictionary.com, you'll find essentially the same definition I gave you for contract, which is kind of proving my point. But I submit there is a key difference between covenant and contract. In the Bible, it lists some characteristics of a covenant. Now, superficially, it starts to look like a contract since it's an agreement between two parties, there are specific terms, and there can be consequences if a covenant is broken. Both a covenant and a contract share those three characteristics. But that's where the resemblance ends. For a covenant, there is no need for a, third, a powerful third party to enforce the terms for one simple reason. A covenant, unlike a contract, is built on trust. In fact, trust is foundational to a covenant. Another difference is that while contracts are 50-50 based, right? I specify what I do, you sp it specifies what you do, you have your 50%, I have my 50%, together that makes up the contract. A covenant is 100-100 based. What I mean by that is each party, both parties, are all in. I'll get into what I mean by that a little bit later. When a contract is broken, what happens next is carefully spelled out in the terms of the contract, and often both parties can choose to part amicably. However, a covenant is an entirely different matter. The breaking of a covenant produces tremendous pain for both parties. The reason for this is that a biblical covenant is actually built on more than just trust. It's also built on love. Deep, abiding, agape love in the case of God. Okay, you might still be wondering, okay, a contract has terms, a covenant has terms. Isn't that really the same thing, Darren? Not at all. Think of it this way. Imagine you have a picture. Again, another photography analogy here for you. Another, a picture that has a foreground image and a background image that makes up a complete picture. Here's just a random picture. In the foreground is my daughter smiling. Now notice the background. The background of this picture is peaceful, dark, green, warm. Now take that same picture 
with a completely different background. You recognize that? That's supposed to be a mushroom cloud in the background. Now think about that. The terms of the agreement, being the picture, they're the same. Once for covenant, once for contract. Same girl in both pictures. But because the background changed, the entire message of that picture changed, didn't it? That's an analogy for how a contract can be so very different than a covenant, even though they might both have the same terms. Love and trust make up the background of a covenant. Lack of trust, need for a legal system, make up the background for a contract. All right, time for a little detour into some Bible linguistics. You guys ready to put your thinking caps on? All right. The Hebrew expression karat burit refers to establishing a covenant. Literally, the phrase means to cut a covenant. It actually means an agreement with cutting. Now, this reinforces the fact that biblical covenants, like all covenants in the ancient world, were agreements created as a covenant or a bond in blood. The parties to the covenant walked through an aisle created by lining up the dismembered halves of the sacrificed animal on either side, and they'd walk through it. Sounds kind of gross, but what they were basically saying was, if I break the terms of this covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to me. It was quite literally a vow made till death. Another custom in the ancient world related to the phrase cut a covenant was the practice of writing up the conditions of the covenant on stone. It would cut into stone the terms of the covenant, and each member would take one of the stones and keep it as a reminder of the covenant agreement, literally written in stone. Now, whether a covenant was cut in stone or cut to spill blood, we're left with the conclusion that a covenant that God initiates can only be broken on pain of death. God's covenant is intended to be everlasting. And he takes all the potential pain on himself. In fact, when Jesus went to the cross, he suffered, bled, and died to create a new covenant with us. Jesus says in his word that there is a new covenant, which is in his blood. Okay, the typical human example for modern-day covenants is usually marriage. And that's a really great one. However, to really underline what I'm trying to get at today about how a covenant is built on a foundation of self-sacrificial love, I want to use the example of a mother and her child. Now, dads, I know that we also form deep bonds with our kids, and I'm not excluding us from this analogy. I'm just saying, for the sake and simplicity of this message, I'm focusing on the bond between a mother and her child. Now, all covenants don't need to be written on stone tablets. And the covenant between a mother and a child is a really deep one. And it's built on love. But think about it, church. It's tremendously one-sided. Almost completely from the mother to the child. Even before birth, there's very little the mother receives back for all she gives. Think about it. The doctor visits, the anxious times, listening for a faint heartbeat, feeling the gentle flutters turn into strong kicks, the discomfort as the baby grows larger, the stretching, sometimes even tearing of her body as she gives birth. 
Not to mention, once the baby's here, all those sleepless nights. Concern over some unexplained crying. Keeping those tiny, sharp nails trimmed. The anxiety over the first faltering steps. Skinned knees, bruises, bumps, tears, all of which need to be kissed better. The shared fears when her child screams from night terrors. Or shared tears when someone is mean to them. Later, there's the hormonal roller coaster of teenage life. <laughs> and finally, the bittersweet transition of helping a beloved adult child leave the nest. If you think about it, there's really nothing ordinary at all about this all-too-common mother's love. And as I look out at you guys now, I see reflected back in me the truth that, that mother's love is deep and meaningful and powerful. It has written, been written about in song and story from the beginning of time. And that's why it really is the same form as a biblical covenant. Think about it. That whispered promise repeated sometimes silently and sometimes aloud as this new human is growing inside of you. I promise to love you and protect you and nurture you and care for you with all my heart. That church is a covenant. Perhaps in the purest form we will ever get to experience here on earth. And that's when everything is going right. Just the normal ups and downs of life. If you really want to see how committed a mom is with regard to a heart covenant that she has with her child, just watch what happens when something goes badly wrong. A threatening illness, a bad accident, a broken heart, poor choices from the child. That's when you get to witness what it means for a mom to be all in with covenant love. Now, God knows all about this love, the depth of this love that a mother has for his child, and he makes a very startling claim. Isaiah 49, 15 says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Listen to this. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Think about that. God is saying that his depth of commitment and love for us is even stronger than that of a mother. The most profound covenant I can think of here on this earth. So in light of this truth, we really need to rethink that story that I told at the very beginning. That twisted version of the gospel story was missing a very critical ingredient. Love. Think about it. There was no love in that story. There was a lot of anger. But trying to tell the gospel without love would be like trying to describe how a mother feels about her baby without mentioning any warm emotions. You'd be left with something that doesn't resemble a mom's love at all. So trying to understand God through the lens of contractual thinking strips out all the emotional essential elements that have to be there to understand it. Trust. Love. John tells us that God is love. You can't strip out love and see God. You instead will see some distorted image, something that is fundamentally wrong, if your view of him doesn't have love 
at the center of it, then please consider you may be looking at him through the wrong lens. Now, we do have an enemy. And that enemy loves to trick us into distorted images of God. In fact, one of his favorite tricks is to switch places with God so that he looks like God and God looks like him. You know what I'm talking about? So think about it. That was the strategy he used in the garden to tempt Eve. And he's been using it ever since. Remember what he told her? God doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good from evil, was what he said. Satan effectively convinced Eve that God had lied about the death clause in the contract and claimed there was these hidden, evil motivations about God, which God had neglected to tell the two humans in the garden. In other words, Satan convinced Eve that he was a better source of truth than God was, and that God was a liar. In other words, he claimed he looked like God and God looked like him. He still uses the same tactics on us today. Do you think of God as evil? A wrongdoer? Do you think of him as angry and vengeful, just waiting to pounce on any mistakes you might make? Do you refuse to think of him at all because you think he did something to harm you or harm someone you love? Church, God is a gentleman. He will not reach into your brain and zap you with the correct view of what he's supposed to look like. He won't do that. Nor will he lie to you and trick you into seeing things in a different way. Instead, if you have a wrong view of him, he will attempt to woo you back to him because he's a lover. So he will bide his time. He will, be he will wait and be until you are ready to be approached. And instead of anger or judgment, he will give you love. He will gently draw you in and teach you what he really looks like and who he really is. Okay, given that perspective, let's look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We read this earlier in the service. Paul knew very well that the religious leaders of his time had turned the law into a list of rules. A list of rules, a contract. They'd stripped the heart out of it and made it look more like a contract than a covenant. And as a contract, all the laws can be used for is condemnation and ultimately spiritual death. I have the verses posted up here. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You know that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Skipping down to verse 12 now. Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Hmm. 
even to this day, when Moses is read, Old Testament, a veil covers their heart. But whenever, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, look carefully back at verse 6, which is right here, verse 6, last part of the second thing here. Paul clearly calls us ministers of a new covenant, using the word covenant very intentionally. And he talks about how the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, church, that's what we've been talking about this morning. If we look at the letter of the law, at just the rules themselves, we will miss the heart of the whole thing, the Spirit. Doing that kills it, but the Spirit gives life. And remember, the Spirit is the Spirit of God, and God is love. Paul goes on to use the analogy of a veil to show how the veil distorted the image and confused the minds of the Israelites from clearly seeing the Spirit, which is God. In verse 17, Paul says, the Lord is the Spirit. So if we want to see the Lord clearly, we need to see him with unveiled faces, without that distorted image of a rule book-based contractual set of legal requirements. Now, I love the depth of theology in these few verses. There's so much more than we can explore this morning. But I hope that this one aspect of what Paul's getting at is a little clearer now. Don't focus on the letter. The letter kills. Focus on the spirit of the new covenant. Look to Jesus, because only in Christ is the veil taken away. Now, let's be careful and not come to the wrong conclusion that God somehow changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That he somehow changed from an angry God into something different. To, do, to, uh, to look at that, let's look back at the book of Jeremiah, which you may remember is part of the Old Testament. And we read that passage earlier in our service. But let's read it again. This time with yearning and compassion, not harshness and judgment. Remember, when God led his people out of Egypt, he wanted them to be his people. And Moses had this revelation. I have no idea how to do that, God. How do we be your people? And from that request of Moses, the request of God, God, how do we be your people? From that came the law. It wasn't meant to be as a series of rules or the terms of contract. It was meant to be the reply from God to a yearning heart that wanted to connect with him as much as he wanted to connect with them. Here's what it looks like to live as my people, was the real message. But the people distorted that covenant, stripped the heart out of it, turned it into a contract, and then broke it repeatedly, over and over again. But let's read this passage from the place of love and desire for us that God told his people through Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because, not because that covenant was broken or wrong, but because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the greatest, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. What we just read is God's promise. He states there is a new covenant that he will make with us. Not like the one he made with our forefathers when he took them out of Egypt. He also gives the terms of how people will accept the covenant. People won't automatically enter into it. They need to choose it. He'll have it written on their hearts. All right, let's bring the praise team back up here. Church, God is saying the same thing to us today. Okay? He wants to be our God. He desires us to simply be his people. If your heart is melted by the desire and love that he shows you, then you're looking at him with an unveiled face and seeing him as he truly is. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. Jesus was not some last-ditch, angry attempt to make a contract with us after we'd broken all the other ones. God knew before he created Adam and Eve that he would come in person to redeem us. Jesus was the plan from the beginning. And in his love, God never wavered from it. If you've been moved by this lesson today, if you want to see God with an unveiled face but just don't know how to do that, then I want to tell you this good news is for you. You can put on Christ in baptism. Because as Paul just said in Corinthians that we read, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Speak to me or any one of the other elders about this. We would love to talk to you. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. We want to see you as you are.